I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm not going to read this whole passage. Uh, We're going to just ask that you open it up and follow along. I'm going to refer to it as we go and read sections of it as we study this. Um, But we're going to start in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians and we'll be covering some of chapter 9 as well. We see here that the title today is Cheer Up, God Loves a Cheerful Giver. Uh, A lot of times when people say, oh no, (laughs) Uh, a sermon on giving, Uh, and, and, and you immediately do the opposite of cheering up. But hopefully today, as we think about these things, we will be cheered up in the Lord And that's my goal for you today. Uh, How can we be cheerful givers? And of course, this applies to our giving to Faith Promise, our giving to to, uh, the regular work of the church. But it also refers to how we go about serving the Lord in whatever capacity, with whatever gifts God has given us. So we can take the application of this and broaden it out uh, and and apply it to all areas of our lives. And I I hope that you will do that. But we're going to speak specifically about giving and uh, faith promise this morning. You'll see here in chapter 8, verse 7, it tells us, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. Now when he says this act of grace, he is referring to the act of giving generously. That's what chapter 8 and 9 are all about. They're taking up an offering uh, for some people in Jerusalem who are in need. There was a famine going on around Jerusalem and the church there needed some relief. Uh, So uh, the churches on the outer lying areas and throughout uh, Asia and Europe were gathering up monies to send to the church there in Jerusalem. So he's talking about giving generously here. Uh, Now just like any behavior in which we engage, we can excel in it by trying harder. You know, he tells them to excel in this grace of giving. We can... Uh, excel in something by sheer willpower, by just bearing down and saying, I'm going to do this thing, but we can rarely, if ever, sustain that behavior over any extended period of time, if it is simply by our willpower. We're just not strong enough. You you think of all the New New Year's resolutions you made back in January. You know, how many people have kept those New Year's resolutions uh, to, you know, cut back, uh, maybe go on a diet or whatever it might have been? Uh, have you remained faithful? I would say probably the overwhelming majority of us have forgotten even what we resolved to do at the beginning of the year. And we're not even, well, we're coming up on the halfway point now. So how can we uh, excel in this grace of giving generously. How can we become a cheerful giver? If you look at chapter 9, verse 7, it says there, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now the word compulsion there means an obligation of a compelling nature. Uh, a compelling obligation. Now, tithing and faith promise are obligations of a compelling nature. 
When we talk about tithing, what we're talking about is the practice of giving at least 10% of your income to the church. Faith promise is giving above and beyond that tithe uh, to the support of missionaries and church planters the ones that our church supports, if we're talking about the faith promise of First Pres Biloxi. Now, when we stop and think about what it takes to operate a church uh, or what it takes to uh, carry on the work of people like Barrett and Brianne Jones, who, are, who will be going to Malawi to do, uh, Barrett to do this medical work, uh, Brianne to do the work with orphans, uh, or John Ruggs' missionary work in Chile, or David Richter, who is planning a church in Boston. Uh, these are all worthy causes. They are obligations that are compelling in nature. We had the missions conference a couple of weeks ago, and we heard from John Rugg. We heard, uh, we heard from, from Barrett uh, about the work that they were doing or were going to do. And we were, we were, it was compelling. We were encouraged by that. We, we wanted to to see them succeed. We want them to go and we want them to do those wonderful things that they are doing and will be doing. And Paul says here uh, that we need to give to these causes. We should give cheerfully, not with sadness or regret or out of obligation, even if it's a compelling obligation. So how does one become a cheerful giver, not just giving out of obligation, not just giving because we're supposed to, not just doing it through our own willpower. How do we become a cheerful giver? Now, the, as we answer that question, we must first ask another question and answer it. And this is the first question that I want to answer, and that is, what is a cheerful giver? And we have here an example of some folks who are cheerful givers. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll read, uh, we'll read that little section. Now, I told you before, the church in Jerusalem was experiencing a famine. And it tells us here, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia was an area that included churches like Philippi or, or Achaia. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us." couple of notes on some of the phrases that are there, some of the things that Paul tells us about these Macedonian Christians. Really some amazing things. These people were cheerful givers. This is, they define what a cheerful giver is if you look at it and break it down. Now first it tells us here that these Macedonians were in a severe test of affliction when they gave generously to this cause. A severe test of affliction. Uh, Severe afflictions are on the scale worse than economic downturns. And we know what an economic downturn, and we might think that we're going through a severe affliction, but these people were being persecuted for their faith. Some of them were being put to death. Some of them couldn't work because of their faith in Christ, because they wouldn't say, Caesar is Lord. 
They would only say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, you could not work, and therefore you could not eat. And that's what these people were going through. So they were going through a severe test of affliction for being Christians. But it says here, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now think about that for a moment. How often do these two things, an abundance of joy on one hand and extreme poverty on the other, you combine those things together and you get, what does it say? A wealth of generosity. You know, usually when you have extreme poverty and abundance of joy, you just have really happy people who can't do anything for you because they have nothing to give. But in this case, you have extreme poverty, uh, people who were, who were destitute, and they had this joy, and it overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They wanted to give. In fact, verse 3 tells us that they gave according to their means, which was obviously very limited, but it says they also gave beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints. You almost get the sense that Paul was saying, you know, you people are too poor to give. You don't need to give anything. You don't have anything to give. And they're saying, yes, Paul, let us give. Please, please allow us. We want to give to this relief effort because we're so joyful in the Lord. Even though we are poor, they were cheerful givers. That's what they are. So how does one become a cheerful giver like these Macedonians? And the key is in verse 5 that we read here. This, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Now last week we were looking at Mark and we we saw the little uh, account of the poor widow in the temple who gave her offering. It says there that she gave uh, two pennies, basically, two, maybe a dollar fifty in the offering plate. Uh, and it says that she gave all that she had to live on. And Jesus commends her because it says, he, he says she gave more than all the people who were wealthy and gave uh, large sums of money. She gave everything that she had. It literally says there in that passage in Mark that she gave her life, meaning that she gave everything that she had to live on. See, she understood that God was everything, and therefore she gave her entire life to the Lord. She put herself completely at the disposal of his providence, of his care. She loved the Lord that much. She gave herself first to him. And that's how she was able to give all that she had to live on into the offering plate. So how does one become a cheerful giver? First, by giving yourself to the Lord, by committing yourself to the Lord. Now as we answer the question, how does one become a cheerful giver? Uh, we, we see what a cheerful giver is. We must ask and answer a second question. And that is, why would you give yourself to the Lord? I mean, if you look, practically speaking, at that poor widow who put her life into the offering plate, I mean, that's crazy. Who does that sort of thing? I mean, you've got a couple of dollars uh, to get a, a meal on, and you're going to put it in the offering plate? Most of us would say, 
that's impractical, that's not wise, that's not a good thing to do. And I'm not sure that I can, you know, disagree with you. My heart says, don't do that. I mean, we don't need your dollar fifty. <laughs> Let me give it for you, and you keep that and do something with it. But she gave herself to the Lord. Uh, why would you do that? Why would someone ever give themselves to the Lord like that? That brings me to the second thing. Why give yourself to the Lord? We have here the example of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I want to break this down for you. This verse here. Why should you give yourself to this Lord? Why should you give him your life? Well, first of all, Jesus Christ was rich, it tells us here. He was wealthy, abounding in material resources. He had a fullness of goods. And when I say fullness of goods, I mean everything. He's God. He owns everything. Let's put this into perspective when you think about what is everything. How far can light travel in a year? Well, scientists do know the answer to that. I have it here in my notes. I couldn't pull it off the top of my head. Maybe some of you who are scientists could. But scientists know that light moves at a velocity of about 300,000 kilometers each second. That's pretty fast. It's the speed of light. So in one year, one year, it can travel about 10 trillion kilometers. You know, a beam of light, if you set it out today in May and you followed it for a year, it would be 10 trillion kilometers away. That's a long way. You know, we don't even, can't even fathom what a trillion is. And, and a lot of us who are who are looking at our nation's debt, have tried to figure out what a trillion is. It's a, it's a number that you can't even imagine. But one year, one light year, is actually, precisely, nine and a half trillion kilometers. And that's a, that's a standard scientists use to measure great distances, because it is a standard thing. Now, as we think about the universe, this great universe in which we live, uh, ours is called the Milky Way, of course. Most people learn this in elementary school. But the next galaxy, the closest one to us, is the Andromeda galaxy. And it is not one light year away, not just simply nine and a half trillion kilometers away. No, it is two million light years away from us. It's the closest one. And if you want to know the hard number, that's 21 quintillion kilometers. Quintil what is quintillion? I, don't, I can't even imagine what that is. Now, the most distant galaxies that we can see, just the ones that we can see from planet Earth with the very best telescopes that human ingenuity can invent, the most distant galaxies we can see are actually 10 or 12 billion light years away. We can't even see the edge of the universe. God owns it all. Christ rules over it all. He was rich. Now we've gone big. 
let's go small. Because he created all this. What is the smallest thing in the universe? And, you know, we can talk about the smallest thing we can see, even with the microscope, but, but we can go smaller than that uh, because there are things that are so small that we cannot see, but we're pretty certain, scientists, when I say we, they're pretty certain that they're there. And they may or may not be there, but they have theories about these things. How small. And of course, we used to think it was the atom, and uh, then we broke that down into the protons and the neutrons. And now they think that protons and neutrons and such of those things are, are made up of something called quark. And I don't know what a quark is, but it's pretty small. When you think of atoms and protons and neutrons. A, a quark, and this is right from the diction, dictionary, is one of two currently recognized groups of fundamental particles which are subatomic and indivisible. And of course, there's a new theory now that thinks that quarks are actually made up of something else. This is called the string theory. And it holds that inside the quarks are incredible teeny tiny one-dimension strings that are really the building blocks of the whole universe. If they do exist, and here, here's where I'm getting to, they are thought to be a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a centimeter. That's how small it is. And there may be even more layers under that, as many as 26 dimensions smaller that scientists talk about. Here's what John Murray, theologian, Princeton theologian, said about this, these, these, these things. Astronomy and physics have taught us many instructive and indeed edifying things regarding this universe in which we live. They have taught us something of its vastness and grandeur, of its beauty and wonder, of its intricacy and delicacy. At our best, in the presence of all this, we are but as children who have gathered a few pebbles on the ocean's shore. But we do get a glimpse of the riches of power, wisdom, design, and purpose manifest in God's handiwork. We see the outskirts of his ways, and we are dismayed at the greatness of the power, wisdom, and goodness therein portrayed. And here's the kicker. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ of whom Paul speaks who made it all, and in him all things consist. There is nothing in this universe, nothing in its grand immensity, nothing in its most infinitesimal minuteness that he has not made and that he does not exhaustively comprehend. All things are by him and they are for him. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. The riches of the Lord Jesus Christ are the riches of God himself. There are no riches that can exceed. The riches of the Lord Jesus are riches, ultimate, absolute, infinite, and eternal, to which there is no addition and from which there can be no subtraction. Jesus Christ was rich. Paul tells us that here in 2 Corinthians. He is very rich. But he goes on. Let's keep reading verse 8. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul uses the strongest term available for Christ's poverty. 
It's not just the word for being poor, it's the word for destitution. It's the word that means you are now so devoid of anything that you have to beg. That's, that's, that's the word for a beggar. Jesus Christ became destitute, though he was rich. The Lord Jesus Christ became poor. He impoverished himself. Now, we need to note this. <clears throat> These words in the, the, their tenses mean something. Jesus Christ was rich. He didn't become rich. He's always been rich. But then it tells us that he became poor. He didn't stop being rich. You know, Some people think that he became poor means that he became divested uh, of some, some of the things that he had before. Uh, some people even believe that he lost his godhood, but that's not the case. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he didn't lose anything. He took on poverty, and he did it when he took on human flesh. He became poor. He impoverished himself. His riches were not his by no donation or investiture. They did not really become his. They were his. But his poverty did come to be, and it came to be because he impoverished himself. He did it willingly, is the point I'm trying to make. And so how did he become poor? He became poor by emptying himself and taking on human flesh. As Philippians 2 tells us, though he was in the form of God, and that word form doesn't mean he was like God, it means that everything that God is, he is. He is exactly God. And he became, as it tells us there in Philippians 2, uh, a nothing. He, he emptied himself of all that glory, and he took on himself the form of a servant. He became everything that a servant is, a slave is. Being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't give up his Godhead or his attributes or anything like that, but he took on the poverty of humanity and he suffered in his life. We see it in every phase of his life. He did it willingly in his birth. You think about how he was born. This is the king of the universe, the one who owns the furthest galaxies beyond what we can even see. And when he came to earth, he was not welcomed by anybody but some shepherds and later on by some wise men. And he was not born in a hospital or in a comfortable home, but he was, he was laid down in, in a food trough for animals. When you saw Jesus in the manger, that was God, the owner of the universe, there in Mary's arms. It's, it blows your mind when you think about that. And then his life. You would think that as he began to speak, that people would say, yes, he's the king. And some people did, very few. Most people despised him and rejected him. He didn't have a home. He grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Nazareth was, uh, you know... I'm from Grand Bay, and we always look down on people from Battery. And uh, they did the same to us, so it's, we're, we're equally rednecks, so I don't think there's any trade-off. But, you know, depending on which side of the tracks you're on, well, Nazareth was on the wrong side of the tracks from somewhere. You know, I think Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
That was the reputation. So he was from Nazareth. He didn't have a home, no dwelling. He subjected himself to the laws that he created. He underwent all the temptations of life just as we do. People looked down on him and scoffed at him. They doubted him. They put themselves in judgment over him. And then he died. He was falsely accused, unjustly condemned for no legal reason. He was betrayed by a friend. His followers deserted him. His accusers beat him, berated him, spat on him, mocked him, whipped him, and treated him as the worst criminal offender until they crucified him on the cross. And worse than that, he bore the full wrath of God in our place there, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ was rich, and he became poor. Why did he do this thing? Why did the owner of the universe impoverish himself in such a way? And it says here, for our sake, so that we might become rich. He sacrificed himself for others. He gave generously, cheerfully. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus was a cheerful giver, not his money, his life. It says there, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, that he despised the shame. He thought nothing of it. The joy of saving a people for himself, of redeeming and restoring his creation. He was a cheerful giver of his life. It wasn't begrudgingly. It was willingly so that we might be rich. He bought us with a price, the highest price. And he redeemed us. And that's what he's doing in the world. That's why people go to Rwanda or to Malawi or to England or across the street or next door, or wherever it is that we go to share this message of a Savior who is offering redemption and salvation, we can participate in his mission of mercy. And when we cheerfully give our tithes and offerings, when we cheerfully commit to participating in faith promise, we are participating in that mission. It's a, it's a response of thanksgiving. No wonder the Macedonians were giving out of their poverty. They were in love with what Jesus had done for them. They were excited about it. They wanted to share that love with people who were suffering in other churches. That's why people give their lives for the mission, because Christ is doing something. He came and he did it, and now he's allowing us to participate in it. And when we do it, when we write that check and put it in the plate, it's not just uh, an obligation that we're carrying out. No, we're giving thanks to God for all that he's secured for us by impoverishing himself in our, on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to be impoverished so that we could have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at verse 12 of chapter 9. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, those saints in Jerusalem, 
but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Why do we take up the offering in the service, in a worship service? Because it is an act of worship. That's what cheerful giving means. We're writing a check, we're dropping in the money because we're giving thanks to God for what he's done for us, impoverishing himself so that we could be saved. And we're participating in that mission that he's accomplishing. We're saying this, the mission means more than my life. The mission is the most important thing. Giving glory to God is the most important thing. How do we be cheerful givers? We have to give ourselves to the Lord, the one who became poor for us so that we might be rich. There are more cheerful givers in Scripture. And I'll give you one last example. In Exodus, God gave Moses instructions on the tabernacle. You know, very detailed instructions on the construction of the tabernacle and all the furniture for the tabernacle, every piece. The tabernacle was the place where the Jews would go to worship God. And it was a symbol of God's presence with him. In fact, God dwelt in the temple. He is glory-filled the tab- tabernacle, I should say. And uh, they carried it with them on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Or after they crossed the Red Sea, they constructed this portable tent for worship. In Exodus 35, it tells us that Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, and then he goes on and makes a long list of all the different things that are needed for the construction of the tabernacle. And then down in verse 20 of Exodus 35, it tells us, All the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses after he had said all these things, and they came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And and it goes on and talks about all the different things the people brought. And then they started the construction. And the people in charge of the construction said this, to Moses. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command, a command Moses gave, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now the material we need to do the work of the Lord, to do what God has commanded, is still needed because the mission, the project, the job is not yet complete. So we must be givers and cheerful givers are the ones that the Lord loves. Let us first give ourselves to the Lord and then ourselves to his service as well. Whether it be service in the act of tithing and giving our offerings and faith promise, or in other forms of service to the Lord, using our gifts for his kingdom, for his mission on earth. 
Jesus Christ was rich. He became poor for us. Let that propel you into a life of giving to him. Let's pray together.